listening to Nine to Thrive, a show about balancing work, creativity, and community. I'm your host, Janet McKenna-Lowry. Later in the hour, we'll be bringing you the second half of our conversation with the saucy and amazing novelist, Elia Winters, about success, the different kinds of writing, and dealing with social media. Right now, though, I'm going to do a review of a book called The Infinite Game by Simon Sinek. It's ironic that his name is pronounced Cynic when he is anything but cynical. I really like this guy. Found him through the TED Talks that he did. He's very, very engaging. But more than that, his content is always about the solid foundations of good, sustainable leadership. Leadership where people like to go to work every day or certainly don't despise it. They're content with it where they feel like they're doing good work, where they feel like they're being appreciated. I can't think of a time where he said something where I just thought, clunk, that doesn't work at all. So he's always really great about how he articulates what good leadership is. So the book that I just read of his is called The Infinite Game. It's based a little bit on the writings of James P. Carse, who was a professor of, I believe, religion. And he applies it to business, but also governments and personal life. So the first question is, when you're doing a pursuit of some kind, is this a finite game or an infinite game? A finite game is like football or chess. The players are known. The rules are fixed and agreed upon. The end point is clear. And winners and losers are easily identified. Most of us would be able to come up with that definition right away. What's interesting is the way that most things are not finite games, but we talk about them like they are and we treat them like they are, and it undermines all the worth and quality of the things we do because an infinite game, like business or politics or life itself, Players come and go. The rules are changeable. There is no defined endpoint. There are no winners or losers in the infinite game. There's only ahead and behind. And in that sense, he doesn't mean ahead like we're getting ahead of others or behind others. It doesn't have to do with others. It's we're getting ahead or behind of our own timeline. He has five essential practices for playing the infinite game. Although before I talk about those, the first thing to do is to recognize how many things are infinite games. So whatever it is you're doing, if you are in college and you're trying to figure out what's next, there's no winner, no loser, no no game rules that everybody agreed upon. If you talk about capitalism or socialism or communism or any of the isms, there's no winning, no losing. In fact, intriguingly, you talk about war, there's rarely anything as clear cut as winning and losing. It's not like a football game. It doesn't really have an end. So he is a business writer. So he really applies the stuff to business first and then sort of talks about how it might affect other things. So the five practices for playing the infinite game are advance a just cause, a worthy cause. Doing that gives our work or organization 
meaning. And it doesn't matter if it's a for-profit or not-for-profit. Not-for-profits usually have them baked in, but for-profits need to as well. It's the world we hope to build and what inspires us to keep playing this infinite game. A just cause must be for something. Affirmative and optimistic, not negative, not so that things don't happen, but so that things do progress. It has to be open for all to contribute. It has to be service oriented because things that are infinite are for the primary benefit of others. Finite is for the primary benefit of ourselves. And then resilient, able to endure change. What's interesting about that is that he does talk about change later. However, an infinite game and an infinite game mindset often makes your organization, I say often, it makes your organization way more resilient, way more able to endure change. He also talks about how this kind of just cause is idealistic. It's big, bold, and ultimately unachievable because it's going to change as time changes because it is not a finite game. Simon Sinek has written before about start with why. Start with the why are you doing this? And that's one of his books. And that's one of his philosophies is the why of what it is you're doing. A just cause is not the why. Why is our origin story, who we are, our values and our beliefs. But just cause is our vision of the future. And it's not a moonshot. It's not that we're going to be the leading whatever. It's not that we're going to be the very best that provide the service or do this work. Look at the wording of companies. And this is really interesting. Look, whenever you are thinking about working for an organization, this is advice that I did not hear till I was quite old. You need to look at how the business itself projects itself to the world. And if it gives you a squeaky feeling, stay away. Go find someplace aligned with your values. Those of us who grew up with a scarcity mindset feel like, oh, no, I'll change. I'll I'll just I'll be able to do it. It's a job. That will keep you trapped. That will keep you miserable. And that will ultimately hurt your health and your sense of self. What's interesting is that in a an abundance mindset to know that there are places out there that will value you, that will have values that align with yours. Everything opens up when you pursue those instead. Look at the wording of companies' websites, their mission statements, whenever they're speaking to their shareholders, their stockholders, their annual report. You can do this. It's all public information if they're publicly traded. And most of the time, even if they're privately held, they're still like this. By the way, do this if you're an investor, too. And look at how they word the question. I've talked about this before. If you are trying to make a decision, Try to blindly write down or enlist a friend and ask. I think I talked about this. In fact, I know I did about guitar lessons. Should I stop taking guitar? You are saying the words stop taking guitar. If you say, should I keep going on guitar? You are somewhere in your brain. It's telling you keep going for a little while. See where you get. The same is true for these company reports. If they start with making money to do good, What that means is that their focus is making money and doing good is a subsidiary second if they ever even get around to it. It's not the same as saying doing good to make money. And Sinek talks about Martin Luther King. He had a dream, not a plan. The CEO is the keeper of the cause because all culture in a company, in an organization, in a university, 
in a family is top down. So the CEO is the keeper of the cause. The second thing that's required is building trusting teams. Trust is built when people feel safe being vulnerable. They feel safe making mistakes. This is huge. I can't tell you the number of jobs I've had where a manager or a founder or an owner took me in to tell me that there was a zero mistake policy. And I had to say, then you can't employ human beings. At our best, we have a 10% error rate. What we need to do is learn from those, but shaming people when they have made a mistake that, and this is different from incompetence. Incompetence is not a mistake. Incompetence is something where you've been coached and you don't learn it, or there's been a postmortem and nobody did anything differently. That's very different. This is mistakes. Mistakes will happen. Quality and high performance is not an absence of mistakes. It's a presence of trust. People who feel safe are honest about shortfalls in performance, and they're honest about things that are coming that they think are going to be a problem because it's safe to take responsibility. It's safe to ask for help. If you feel like you will be fired for any mistake you make, then you will not admit to your mistakes. And if you have a boss who does this and you know you are dealing with someone deeply insecure who is in a leadership position and a bad leader, you cannot demand trust. You have to grow it. And trust is about character where performance is about technical competence. Trusting teams will always outperform high-performance untrusting teams. If you have a team full of superstars who do not trust each other, even though in the short term, even though on the surface, they will look like they are doing well in actual performance metrics, they will not, they cannot, they do not. And if it does happen, it's for a very short amount of time, which, what's the point of that? He also talks about a really interesting concept called ethical fading, which is a condition in a culture that allows people to act in unethical ways in order to advance their own interests, often at the expense of others, while falsely believing they haven't compromised their own moral principles. I would actually maybe nuance this a little bit. It's people who are trying desperately to cover their own rear ends, and they will act unethically and they will falsely believe that they haven't compromised themselves or been unethical because it is, in fact, the only path an untrusting, untrustworthy organization lets them take. But ethical fading often starts with seemingly tiny little transgressions that are unchecked and then compound, sort of into slippery slopes. Huge famous case for this was Wells Fargo Bank. The pressure was so high for people to enlist new customers. They weren't allowed to work. They would be fired if they didn't hit random numbers, numbers that were meaningless, that the business had decided should be the correct ones. They were punished so severely that they started to just sign up people randomly for accounts they didn't have, sending people into collection, sending people into debt for things they hadn't done, they hadn't signed up for, just because they were not permitted to actually perform their job without this kind of ethical fading. And here's the thing, even if unethical behavior is not illegal, it's still not the right thing to do. This is a very interesting point because I went to a business school 
and I've read tons of things in Harvard Business Review and elsewhere. There is a very loose business school grasp sometimes about actual ethics, mixing it with legality. Just because it's an industry standard does not mean your business should do it too. Just because right now it seems like that other business is undermining their own ethics or even undermining what could be considered cultural ethics and getting away with it doesn't mean they will get away with it forever. Please just go look at Miramax. Number three of these things that help you prepare for the infinite game, prepare for existential flexibility. I love this. I think it'll make a great band name. It's the capacity to initiate an extreme disruption to the business model or strategic course in order to more effectively advance a just cause. This could be a shift to a new technology, a new business model entirely, or a new path. Existential flexibility is always offensive. It is never defensive. The existential flex inspires people in the organization and reignites their passion. Existential flexes are driven by the just cause. This is really interesting because I've often talked about values and mission statement. Those are supposed to be real. And you're supposed to take the decision that you're about to make, the strategy that you're considering, and hold it up to that list of values. Hold it up to that mission statement and see whether it aligns. It's not just a nice thing to stick on the website. And if it says things like, we'll be the best, you won't. That's not the game. You are playing literally the wrong game. And by doing that, you will never be able to do an existential flex unless you get a leader in who is infinitely minded and everything changes. But it does align and is driven by the just cause. An infinite mindset leads to resilience, but not stability. Because resilience and stability are not the same. A company's stability comes from being structured in order to remain the same forever. It's about weathering storms and remaining the same. Stability is about staying the same after the storm, weathering the storm and staying the same. With stability, change is a threat. Resilience comes from being structured so that it will last forever. And there are companies in Japan that are 700 years old. It is possible. Resilience is about embracing surprises and then changing and adapting to those surprises. Not to weather the storm, but to be transformed by the storm. With resilience, change is an opportunity to be seized. If the canal companies of the 1830s in New England had been infinitely minded, had they known they were playing the infinite game, they would have been able to have the existential flex had their just cause been we are here to make sure that people and products get to the place they need to get to. If they had all embraced something along those lines, then when the railroad came in, it wouldn't have been a threat. It would have been an opportunity and it would have been a massive shift to their business model to change over and become railroad companies. And when the airplane companies came, it would have been a massive shift to go into airplanes or cars or anything like that, but they didn't. They were very finite minded. They were canal companies. The railroad companies were railroad companies. They had no just cause and they were making a lot of money and they only 
thrived for a period of time and then died. And he has as a really good example of this Kodak. When George Eastman started the Kodak Company in Rochester, New York, his just cause was to put photography in the hands of everyone, not just a few professionals. And the company was there to serve everyone. They developed the digital camera 10 years before anybody else. But then they refused to flex. They prioritized their current business model, which was they made money on every single step of photography. They made money when they sold you a camera, when they sold you film, when you sent your film to be developed, had the pictures and the negatives. Every single step, Kodak made money and they could not flex because they had lost sight, as happens with human beings, of that just cause and had now defaulted to a finite mindset, one in which they were doing very, very well, but no more. They're a shell of their former selves. They have like a 164th of their previous employee numbers, and they only serve professional photographers now. They completely blew it. The next one is demonstrate the courage to lead, which, of course, if you're going to play the infinite game, if you're going to be able to handle the existential flex, you definitely need a backbone and you definitely need the courage to lead. A lot of times people only get that when something terrible happens. A lot of people don't understand that they have treated everything like a finite game. Because, of course, their parents, their teachers, the people on TV, news, everything has told us all these things are finite games. A lot of people don't discover that that's an inaccurate way to live a fulfilling life until they get terribly ill or there's a death of someone that's close to them or they're injured really badly. A life-altering experience that changes what happens to them. That often is the only way they start to see the world differently. But finding a just cause that inspires us and committing to playing the infinite game around that just cause can do just the same. You don't have to have a terrible experience happen to change your mindset from finite to infinite. Infinite is not a checklist. It's a new way to think about how you define success, how you define purpose. A business's responsibility should include three pillars. I would add one. Well, maybe not. His are advancing a purpose, protecting the people, generating a profit. Actually, I would stay with these. And if you'll notice, that is the order they go in. And that is the correct order. Profit is third. Because if you don't advance a purpose, you're not going to get good people. If you don't protect those people, they're going to go. And then you will not generate a profit. All of those things, I know it says it's pillars, but they lean on each other. It's more like keystones. I would also put under protecting people, there's an aspect of this that's protecting the environment because we cannot protect people if we pillage the environment, if we continue to disregard the effects of environmental degradation. An infinite leader ensures that all who contribute will benefit across all of these three pillars, employees, investors, everyone, because investors should be advancing the purpose and should be buying into the purpose, should be interested in protecting people and should be interested in generating a profit in that 
order. Investing is not a finite game. And the entire world will tell you different because the entire world wants to play it like a casino. As Cynic puts it, the responsibility of business is to use its will and resources to advance a cause greater than itself, protect the people and places in which it operates, and generate more resources so that it can continue doing these things for as long as possible. An organization can do whatever it likes to build its business so long as it is responsible for the consequences of those actions. He does have a great example of playing the infinite game, Victorinox, the Swiss army knife people. Their philosophy is flawless quality combined with great reliability, consistent functionality combined with perfection and iconic design. That has allowed them to move out of pocket knives because once the TSA started confiscating pocket knives, people stopped carrying them nearly as much as they had. Everyone had a pocket knife in the 80s and 90s, but not if you're going to lose it at the airport. Now they've gone into things like travel gear that's very dependable, and even they even have a fragrance and whatever it is, as long as it aligns with those things. There are many examples that he has in this book of companies that started with an infinite mindset, then grew and got wary and complacent and put in a CEO that represented that wariness and that complacency. It's totally human nature. Some companies will die that way. There's a huge force to go finite. Wall Street is an amazingly huge pressure to go finite. Venture capitalists, for all that they yell that they're, this is true of CEOs too, they all sort of moan about how they're paid to risk. And then they do everything, including not paying their employees fairly to avoid risk. Those people aren't being paid to risk. <laughs> they're being paid to stay very, very safe and very, very finite. By doing those things, they end up in incredibly risky behavior in the sense of they trash their organizations and somebody else has to come along and clean up. So those are the five things that he's got. Advancing the just cause, building trusting teams. Oh, I didn't even talk about this. I skipped it. The third one is studying worthy rivals. A worthy rival helps us see our weaknesses and pushes us to continually improve. They push us to always be better. Competitors force us to take on an attitude of winning, whereas a worthy rival inspires us to take on an attitude of empowerment, and it's all in how you see it. Apple and Microsoft came up together. Microsoft was obsessed with beating Apple. You can read it in magazines and in interviews and in the writings from the company, executives, everything. Beating Apple was all they wanted to do, and that's not a just cause. Apple was obsessed at the time with their just cause. Apple was always trying to outdo itself. It would watch what Microsoft was doing, and then look internally how to do better. And my guest, Elia Winters, has some really great stuff to talk about with this because she was talking about how authors often feel like, at first, that they're pitted against each other. So you meet a bunch of authors in your same genre, you go to various events or conferences together, and you look at other people. In fact, Cynic talks about this with other people that are in his genre of business improvement, getting a little obsessed with other people selling better, selling more, wondering if you should change how you do to be more like them. 
That's defense. That's not offense. Other writers are all readers. They're not your competition. They're your audience. All you can do is get better at doing what you do. It's interesting how much literature and how much focus there is on things like strategizing based on analysis of competitors when that will never really ultimately be the deciding factor is how good you are at somebody else's business. Literally mind your own business. All you will ever be able to be judged on is how good you are at your own. So that's number three. Number four is existential flexibility. And number five is demonstrating the courage to lead. Then he also talks a little bit about politics and the stock market crashes. The Glass-Stengel Act, which was passed after the 1929 stock market crash, led to the Great Depression. And there were no crashes after that until the 90s when it was gutted. And since it was gutted, we've had three massive major crashes. Online, the various groups with which I feel spiritually aligned, capitalism is a shorthand for the very worst of things that could ever happen to us. It's broken right now. What we have right now isn't capitalism. And here's the thing. Capitalism is essentially morally neutral, I'm going to say. It's an organizational framework. It's supposed to be about progress and prosperity, not just prosperity and not just prosperity for a few. If you read the sort of originating Adam Smith and the people that originated capitalism and the sort of philosophy that it's based on, it doesn't involve all this exploitation. And the reason it becomes involved with all this exploitation has to do with people playing the finite game. I love reading Simon Sinek. I love listening to him too. He's a great speaker. His ideas are pretty clear. They're pretty easy to grasp. I'm always a little reluctant to the kind of idea of like, here are five simple things or two simple things, three simple things, 10 simple things. But you do have to draw the line somewhere. Five is actually kind of nice. It's one hand. If you have enough to write about, that's great. These are five very clear ways to change mindset to looking to the future. He's really talking about business. He does go in and talk about politics talks a little bit, very little bit about individuals, but I would like to expand that and to say, look at what it is you're doing yourself with your own life right now and find out whether your goals are finite or infinite, because all these things can help you to get better clarity. Saying no to what seems like an opportunity in desperation that is not a good fit is saying yes to the millions of other opportunities that you won't see if you're sad and miserable. There's another really great way of saying it that's about relationships, which is when you get out of a bad relationship, a lot of times we get a finite mindset, feeling very lost, feeling very upset, feeling like we're less than what we were in that relationship. But by saying no to that relationship, we have just said yes to the five plus billion adults on the planet if you're not too picky. That is the same with this. So you can take some of these things and look at it, apply them to your career, apply them to your studies, apply them to any time you're sort of sitting there wondering what the plan should be because your life is also an infinite game. 
If you're just joining us, you're listening to Nine to Thrive, a show about balancing work, community, and creativity. Next is part two of a conversation with award-winning erotic romance novelist, Elia Winters. How do you find the editing process to be? Having written it, brush your hands, send it to an editor, and then have it come back and be like, well, I got to face this again. <laughs> I've moved on. <laughs> sometimes it's uh, sometimes it's awful. I, I do actually like editing. I didn't always like editing, but I've, I've gotten more faith in my ability as an editor. Mm. And that helps. So I'm like, oh, no, it's it's going to be good. Like, you're going <laughs> to like it at the end. There's something really rewarding about pulling out the the threads that you've woven and like recognizing how they fit into this tapestry. That's that's fun. I like that. But uh, there's always um, I, I do a lot of self editing mm. before I send anything off to an editor. So usually when an editor gets it, it's it's in one of two places. Either I think it's working really well, or I'm just stumped. Mm. And I don't know how to fix. I think I know what's wrong with it, but I'm not really sure. So those feel different from each other. Generally, at this point, when I feel like, okay, this is working, it tends to be working. I seldom have major developmental shifts in my books Mm. when I didn't realize they needed to be there. Right. Like usually at this point now, like if there's something wrong, I can pretty much tell. But early, um, it was not always like that. And it it's very fun to problem solve with someone who understands your work. And that's yeah. kind of how I try to think about editing. So my work with Tara on that third book was great because I, I had done some some thoughts, some changes to it when it was still with the publishing house. And so going back to her and saying, like, here's what I'm thinking. And we had this whole hour long phone call where we just spitballed, like, what if, and what if, and how about this? And mm. and that's really fun. Like collaborative brainstorming is very fun. I try to do that earlier in the process, but sometimes I get like halfway through and I'm spinning my wheels. Mm. And my agent has been good for that too. She has a great sense of, um, not all agents edit, mm. but she worked with me on my first book before it went into submission and gave me great feedback about you know, how to tighten up the arcs and how to make this clearer. And so I can still talk to her about ideas and, and she's wonderful for that. Mm. So that's, that's more fun than it used to be. Mm. And going into editing, thinking this is going to get great (laughs) is rewarding. (laughs) (laughs) Now, are you tempted, you were talking about like the seasons of time. Are you tempted to, or are you, you know, anticipating to getting to being a writer full time? I used to be. So this is, I actually really like telling this story because I think it's been helpful to me. There was a while, a little ways back, I had a, I had a trilogy picked up by a pretty major publishing house and one of the, one of the big five or big four, I don't know, they keep eating each other. So I, I took this contract. They wanted to release the books six weeks apart in the summer, Mm. which meant it was a contract on proposal. So I hadn't written them yet. So it meant I had to write them eight weeks apart. 
And I was writing them during a time where I was in an online master's program, (laughs) teaching full time (laughs) and directing a musical. And it was this really bleak time where I'd come home and write and then just like sit in the dark in the bath and go to bed mm. for like about six weeks straight. And it was brutal. Yeah. And then the trilogy came out that summer and they, they wanted to do this push to have them out like really fast and do a rapid release. So they built some sales and they didn't do the marketing that I thought was going to happen behind it. Mm. So I felt like I had put all this effort into things and I just wasn't getting back what I thought I was putting in. Mm. And, and so I, I took that time. I said, okay, well, let me take this summer and because I'm a teacher and I've got a couple months off. Let me write at the pace like I would be writing if I were writing full time and see what this feels like. Mm. And so I wrote, you know, a few hours every day. And what I discovered is that I like people. <laughs> and I was really lonely. Mm. I was spending this summer mostly focusing on my writing and I have like online friends and connections, but without the social work of my job and the other things I usually do in the summer to fill my time, I didn't feel really fulfilled. Mm. And so I thought, okay, if I were going to write full time, if I wanted to duplicate my income, here's what I would need to do. And could I do that? Yeah, I probably could, but I just don't think it's worth it. I actually really like my day job and coming to that point to be like, I don't want to work to replace my income as my primary goal freed me up. I think to let myself take a slower pace with things. Mm. And that's been, um, that's been very helpful to distinguish that it isn't me slowly not duplicating my income. It's me deciding to keep writing and publishing and what comes of it comes of it, but that it is not going to replace my teaching job. And I'm not going to work for that. So this is a really fascinating and important thing to have out there because I don't think we ever see good modeling of making it a choice to, do you know what I mean? Like the, the sort of force of the, the force of the narrative of somebody being successful as a writer would be, oh, I worked in this job, but then I got some success as a writer. I became a writer. It's what I do. You almost never hear of someone who does what you did, which is to sit there for a summer and say, what would my life look like like this? I choose to keep it in the realm of the other thing I do so and, and keep the teaching as the other thing I do and value that. I just think that's a... I don't know. It seems like every pursuit you're told you have to pursue it 100% professionally and be a success at it. That's what success means. I think that's really true. And I think it's, it's also reflected in our side hustle culture Mm. that if you have a hobby, you enjoy, someone's always telling you how to monetize it. Yeah. And the best way to ruin a fun hobby is make it your job. Mm. Like you can definitely make and and that's fine like if you love doing something and you can make money at it great 
but you can also love something and do it and not get paid for it and yeah. not like do anything for the money. Yeah. And I think, and I'm always like, after one of my friends is an amazing graphic designer and she drew my avatar and she mm. does, you know, really beautiful work. And so she is like interested in side hustling her art and we talk about it. And so I'm always like, you should do this if you want to do this. Mm. But at the same time, on the other half of my mouth, I'm like, you know, you don't have to. Like, if you do just want to just draw, you could just draw. Right. So it's hard to divorce it from this. Like people say, oh, do something you love and you'll never work a day in your life. That is a lie. <laughs> you do something you love and people will continuously pressure you to undervalue yourself because you love it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> do you have to uh, well actually I had two questions about that you talk interchangeably about writing what you want to write and then writing what sounds like almost assignments or hmm. is there an intermediary of you propose to write something you think you're going to want to write but it becomes more of an assignment is that do I have that right well well once yeah well once I I'm always proposing what I want to write so a lot of when you're first getting started in publishing in general, if you are a fiction writer, you have to have a completed work to propose. Mm. But once you get a few works under your belt and you people know that like you what kind of work you produce, you can pitch, you can pitch. Ah. So I'm going to be pitching this trilogy. And what I will do is my agent will tell me what people want, which is usually the first 10,000 words of the first book, plus blurbs and full synopses for all the books. Okay. And those can change, but like they have to see that you've got a sense of what you're going to write. And then she shops that around. So she contacts the publishing houses who might be interested, talks to the editor she knows, and sends them the packages. And mm -hmm. they'll say like, yes, we'd like to offer on this. Or no, not for us, or we need to see more of it or, or something like that. Mm. So if something is accepted on proposal, then I sign a contract to write those books as I've envisioned them mm. within a time frame that we all agree upon. I see. Okay. Yeah. And then do you balance, like when you do the self-publishing, is that just straight out what you want to do? Um. Yes. Okay. So I... I generally decide um, because I'm, I'm slowly getting into this, this hybrid sense, the things that I'm going to be self-publishing usually are things that are a little more niche mm. or a little bit like less, less interesting to a mainstream publishing house. Mm. So I want to self-publish a collection of short erotica, not erotic romance, but just erotica. Uh -huh. I'm going to self-publish that. And, and sell them as individual short pieces and then compile them together ah. because that's how those things, those things sell really well in certain platforms. And so I don't want to give a publisher their percentage, right. their very high percentage. Like I want all that. Money. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to do that myself, but something where like this trilogy I'm writing, it's less, and, and you, it doesn't have to just be erotica, obviously. But for me, like that's that's my next self-published project. Mm. This other trilogy, I'm really passionate about the topic, and I think that it could do well with a lot of push from a mainstream publishing house. 
So we're going to pitch it to mainstream publishing houses. And if nobody wants it, then I'll look at mm. for this particular project, I'll look at self-publishing it. I see. I see. And you've touched on this, but how much time, how much effort needs to go into promotion? How much are you required to show up and be a face at promotion? For a publishing house? Ah, let's start with that. Yeah. (laughs) It's in my best interest to do everything my publisher wants me to do when it comes to marketing. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And generally I do. So I published a book this past summer, Hairpin Curves, and it was part of the initial run of the Karina Adores line. And Karina Press is is an arm of Harlequin. And Karina Adores is this first wave, and I guess there's more of them now, of queer romance novels Hmm. that are getting just a ton of of backing, a ton of push from Harlequin, from Harlequin's publishing arm. That's kind of, that's progressive. And it's great. And I'm, I was so excited to be part of this first wave. It's one of the first books of mine that's gotten a print run because generally my books are digital first. Ah. So it was so fun to go sign books at Barnes and Noble, like not at an event, just to go in and be like, hey, I wrote this. Can I sign it? And then they let you do that. That's so fun. I hope that never gets old. So I did, but I did a lot of, they're like, hey, we've got these various things. Would you like to do them? They always give me the option. And I always say yes. So I wrote, they've got my, they've given me guest spots on blogs and evening like events for virtual zoom like happy hours and Mm. coffee shop talk and and hosting all these events and so i go to all of them they're Mm. really fun i get to talk to other authors and so the publishing house has like because they're harlequin and they're really good at those things they've gotten me some some amazing publicity because of that um hairpin curves made it into o magazine last summer wow congratulations that's pretty fun like it's a huge highlight <laughs> of like 20 recommended summer reads. And I was just so thrilled. Wow. Yeah. So it's really exciting. With, um, with self-publishing, it's, it's all kind of connected. Like now that I've gotten a number of books out and I, I was fortunate enough to win the Rita, I feel like the, the more you get known, the more effort publishers put behind you. Mm-hmm. So I'm still, I wouldn't even consider myself a mid-list author. Like I'm not getting the kind of budgets that when you see a book everywhere, mm-hmm. that's because that's where that publishing house's whole budget is going. Right. They're putting this book everywhere. You know, you go to an airport. <laughs> yeah. When you that see happens. those books at the Center Islands, the featured books at Barnes & Noble, like those are publishing dollars. Mm. This is a self-publisher. Like it's about me. Like I am the brand. Elliot yeah. Winters. So my goal is to be visible, having my website, picking the social media platforms that I like, and being present there and posting stuff. And it's not about selling books. There's nothing worse than an endless series of tweets that are just somebody yelling, buy my book into right. the void right. with hashtags. Like people think of marketing as that. And that's not what it is. It's you got to be a person. Right. And people who like you will want to see what you read. And then now and then when you get a new book out, you post about it. Mm. And I always I sell a lot of books through Twitter. Interesting. 
Twitter does sell books. Yeah. I'm getting into TikTok and TikTok's really fun. And book talk is, is oh really God. fun. And I'm getting a sense of that. Oh yeah. Yeah. I'm, I, I'm on book talk. <laughs> yes. I, uh, so I've just got a few videos out there. Mostly I'm talking to other authors in my current videos right now, but just explaining like publishing and such. Mm. But I'm, I'm going to make more just, just giving myself time to, to get used to it. I'm on Facebook. Facebook isn't my favorite platform, so I don't do a lot there, but I have a presence there. Right. And so I think it's like choosing where you're going to put your attention and being there. Yeah. I, and I have to say, it kind of, pulls into my other question where like social media is a massive time and attention magnet. (laughs) That's something I have never managed to balance between just sort of doom scrolling and actually, I don't know, actually using it in such a way that it connected and then I left. (laughs) Mm, Yeah. That seems hard. Yeah, it's it's hard. I think I'm always looking for that balance and and trying to make the choice to be on it deliberately as opposed to ending up there. Mm. Yeah, that's uh, that sounds like, like the key. Uh, I can't count how many times I've closed Twitter on my phone and then automatically reopened Twitter. Right. I'm like, whoa, stop that brain. Thumbs, yeah. What are you doing? I turned off all notifications, but there's that little red circle that tells me that like (laughs) 18 somethings have happened specifically in Mm -hmm. relation to me. And I go, oh, what are those 18? Oh, people like some stuff. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. But now that I'm here. (laughs) Sometimes I'll I'll treat it as my reward. Mm. If I've got a, um, if I've got something I'm working on then like, okay, you can, you write 500 words, then you can go on Twitter. (laughs) Do your dishes. (laughs) Well, and and actually, since we're talking about social media, let me bring it to a a different media. Are you hoping, is is there a piece of you that wants to see some of your work make it into, you know, drama or filmed, or I suppose, uh, given some of your topics, video games or other kinds of gaming, is, is there any hope that you'd end up doing that that someone would pick it up and decide oh to it would be it? it would be so fun yeah i'd love that i do have an idea for something that i would like to pitch as a series for netflix or hbo or showtime and i've talked to my agent about that because we're fortunate enough to have some agency connections there cool. but that's sort of uh if that if i end up pitching for that it's going to be the only thing i'm focused on Right. And so I haven't haven't wanted to to put the time on that yet. But oh, I'd love to. And I have done um IP work, intellectual property work, which is like I've worked for an app ah. which is one of the um romance story apps. So I have a non-disclosure and I can't talk about which one. <laughs> but it's but I have done work for hire that my name will never appear on mm. that. I just work and write these stories for, and they, you know, pay me for this word count. And those are really fun because writing something that your name doesn't appear on is actually can be really rewarding. too. Mm. Mm. So, yeah. So you'd like to see, would you, uh, would you 
see it be filmed, would you be interested in doing anything for stage? Um, I think because of the nature of what I write, it's probably not a good fit for mm -hmm. that. Okay. I've done a little bit like back a ways ago, I have written like a short, I have written a short play, like mm -hmm. a different a drama that's a reader's theater piece. And I, I would consider it a pretty different medium. Mm. So like starting over in a way that, you know, could be fun. I have written a screenplay that's terrible that I don't ever <laughs> want to do. With. But I wouldn't rule it out. I think it's fun to know that there's all these other outlets available out there. Yeah. Yeah. What do you wish you had known from the beginning? I love that question. Um, I would have liked to know from the beginning that you don't have to make it your full time. That doesn't have to be your goal. Right. I wish I had understood a lot more about the need for making connections with other authors early because it took me a while to, to figure that out. Mm. And how do you do that? Make the connections? Yeah. Mostly conversations on Twitter for me <laughs> and other social media, but it's, it's predominantly Twitter for me right now. A little bit TikTok, but I haven't quite found my group on TikTok yet. Mm. So yeah, also I go to conventions when we, uh, when it's safe to gather around people. So I've, I've met up with a lot of people at like Romance Writers of America National Conference and some local romance writers chapters. Mm. So making connections through that. Yeah. And just that it's, it's really the long game. It's not, I should say it's a long game for me. Mm. There are a lot of ways to do it. There are a lot of ways to be a writer and People want to make certain ones valid and others not. And people set all kinds of rules about these things that, oh, to be a real author, you have to be published by the big five or you can't right. be self-published. Or if you haven't had a print run or if you're not a literary fiction author, like there's there's all these rules with it. It's yeah. all crap. There's <laughs> lots of ways to be a writer. It's all valid. Like try and find the your own definition for success. Mm. That's some great advice I've seen online is like, what does successful look like for you? Mm. Because unless you define that, you'll never feel like you're um, on the right track. Mm. Right. There's always going to be someone telling you're not. You're not yeah. right. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, and I got, I got one more advice for past me and any other writers out there, which is um, learn how to stop for the day. Ah. Learn how to set interim goals because you will always have more to do. Right. And so if you're constantly relying on external metrics of what's enough, you will forever feel unsatisfied and frustrated with your own progress. You'll always feel anxious like you should be doing more. Mm. Be able to be like, that's enough for today and mean it and feel good about it. And that doesn't happen automatically. You got to practice that. Mm. But once you can like set boundaries around these parts of your life or else they'll just fill every corner of your time. Mm. Yeah. I, I could. Or well, with guilt. 
Yeah, I was going to say the time the time has already got so many claims on it that then feeling bad about it is like <laughs> an unnecessary claimant. <laughs> yeah. So it's been interesting because you've kind of covered some of some of the answer to the idea of if you were given a million dollars right now, what would you do? Like what's next for you? And and you've made the deliberate choice to you're kind of like a lottery winner who like still really loved their job and so they still do it, but you know <laughs> it's, You don't need to <laughs> it's not mandatory in some way. Could be could be doing the other one. If you had zero obstacles, what would you do from here? What's next? Maybe what's next for real. Yeah, what's next for real? Well, I'm not sure that I would teach full time if I had the ability and the financial capacity to do it part-time. I think I would consider that. I also like teacher retirement in the state where I live is great. And Mm. I want to test that. (laughs) So that's something I'd like that. That would probably be enough to keep me teaching full-time. Just keep on that retirement. (laughs) I, I really, I often feel like I'm, I'm about to run out of ideas and, and I never am. (laughs) <laughs> I just can only usually see the next immediate project. Mm. So I'd, I'd like to keep writing. I like doing what I'm doing. I want to keep going with it in my, um, my, the rest of my life, my husband and I are, um, we want to build our own log home, mm. like ourselves, like not like I have training in this and like peeling the logs and stacking <laughs> them and doing all that. And that's, that's our next project. Oh wow. So that's that's part of what that's part of what has me not writing right now is trying to get everything in place to maybe buy some land. Mm. So that's like the immediate next thing. And then, you know, start writing, lift some logs, do some writing, teach kids, <laughs> mostly more of the same. I'd love to do more traveling. Mm. And I think that's that's on the horizon as well. Mm. Nice. Do you go internationally when you do things like promote and things like that for other conferences? I have not. I did get invited a couple of years ago. Um, there's a, a French publishing house that has bought the rights to several of my books in translation. Oh, wow. And so I have a, I have some French books out there. The covers are amazing. <laughs> <laughs> they do not have the same hangups that we do in the United States. <laughs> so. Lu has published a few of my a few of my books and they invited me to a big romance conference in in Paris in I don't remember if it was 2019 or if it was 2020 in which case it would have been canceled anyway mm. so I would love to and just haven't yet it's mm. one of those things where um publishers don't pay for any of that ah I was so, going to ask you that. Yeah. If you're a high enough list author, they do. But for someone like me, all of that expense is mine. Mm. So at this point, no, but I would like to. Mm. Interesting. That would be a lot of fun. <laughs> I, oh, love, yeah. I, love, I love the whole French. French don't have the same. Well, I mean, historically, no. <laughs> Correct. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, this is fantastic. So, yeah. So, so next is, is the house. That was funny. That was not the, um, that was not the answer I was expecting. 
the next is build a log yeah, house. just stuck out there. <laughs> build a log home. That's another thing on the to-do list. <laughs> I know. It's like the bucket's too big for a bucket list. Or maybe the right? bucket's too small. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Well, this is really fantastic. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today. Oh, thanks for having me. It's been really fun. And I so appreciate the opportunity to connect and talk about this stuff. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a whole different, it's, it's a whole different track in the world. It's interesting how your feet are in both of those teacher, how to sort of progress, how to have that job, how to do that job. That's very familiar to me. You know, author, it just feels sort of like this universe I don't know about really. So that's fantastic. It's a, I think one of the things that was um, really wild for me is I spent so long focused on getting an agent that once I got one, she's like, all right, now let's start. And I was like, wait a minute, <laughs> not prepared for that. And all of a sudden she's like, all right, now by Friday, you need a platform. You've got to get your website going. You've got to get these various things. And, and suddenly I was thrust into this whole world that I'd been preparing to enter and had given no thought to what it would actually be part of. I don't, you can't know what you don't know. Nope. You can't know what you don't know. It's true. Everybody feels like an imposter. Everybody's making it up as they go along. Yeah. That's a big one. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for tuning in today. I so appreciate Elia for coming to the show to talk about what she does. Links to her work, as well as past episodes, including the first half of our conversation, can be found at working9to thrive.com, and that's with a nine. 